You turn with me now in the Word of God to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 3. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to ask you to stand now out of respect for the reading of the Holy, infallible, inspired, and an errant word of the living God. Jesus Christ says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, that you are dead. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in the white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sometimes you can figure out the strength or the force of a message in a repetitive series of messages by noticing what's not there. Sometimes by seeing what's not there, but what you expect should be there or normally would be there is a way of beginning to realize that the uniqueness and the distinction of, of the particular message in a series has something that really needs to be highlighted. So, uh, as we look at our text this morning, I, I want us to know what's absent. And maybe we'll pick it up like this, by just hearing and remembering Christ's previous charges to His church. He, he says to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2, You have perseverance, and you have endured for My name's sake, and you've not grown weary. To Smyrna in 2.9, He said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. You are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To Pergamum and 2.13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. And to Thyatira, he says in 2.19, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. But what should stand out to us as we hear all of those um, direct addresses of Christ to His church in the initial part, uh, part of the address, Jesus clearly says something of commendation to the church. It stands out like a sore thumb, however, when you come into uh, chapter 3, verse 2, that Christ says nothing good about the church. I wonder if you caught this in our reading. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There's nothing good. There's nothing commendable 
that is highlighted by Jesus Christ as he speaks to Sardis. In fact, what Jesus highlights and isolates is discrepancy. Discrepancy. There is a discrepancy between their reputation and reality. There is a discrepancy between reputation and reality. The reputation is they have the name for being alive, but in reality, Jesus says, you are dead. And the danger of this discrepancy is highlighted here by the urgency of the sound and, and the tone and tenor of Christ's threat in verse 3. If you don't wake up, I'll come to you like a thief. You see, what Jesus is doing is underlining the danger, the spiritual danger of being a drowsy church. And the point of Jesus' letter this morning to the church of God, as it is mediated through the church of Sardis, is to sternly warn the church in, in every age of the fraud of a vain reputation. To warn the church of the fraud of a vain reputation. And that in spite of appearances, it cannot conceal spiritual rot. You can put all the perfume on your spiritual life you'd like, but Jesus can see into the heart and he knows where the rot is. And that's precisely the message he brings to the church at Sardis and to us this morning. We begin our exposition this morning with assessment. We begin with assessment. I had plan to expound the whole of the letter, but I've just decided to keep my message focused this morning on the first three verses. And so he addresses the church at Sardis. He says he writes or he should write. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds and that you have a name that you are alive and you are dead. And normally at this part of the message, I would say something about the city. So we thought about what Ephesus was like. We thought about Smyrna. We thought about Thyatira. And we thought about the various churches so far. And it seems that as you looked at those different cities, there was something peculiar about the nature and the culture of the town in which that church was located. But it's quite odd to me that there's nothing really interesting about Sardis. Nothing really at all. And I got to thinking about that. And one of the things that that seemed to indicate to me is that Jesus here, instead of shaping a message which is peculiar to a church in a, in a specific kind of culture, what Jesus does is he makes this the broadest kind of application to the church possible because there's nothing peculiar or distinct or unique about Sardis which would shape the message. And so by delivering this particular message to this church, and by the way, providentially, this was the problem in this church, there is a generalness about this. That means there is a breadth about the application of this very dangerous spiritual problem settling into the church, which is a reputation that doesn't match reality. A reputation that doesn't match reality. And it's highlighted in the very structure of the language here. So we begin with the reputation. And Jesus says, first of all, I know your works. I know your works. And if we were first-time readers of, of these letters, um, well, 
we could be excused. We could be excused for sort of leapfrogging over this initial phrase, I know your works, and, and trying to dig past it to find what we're expecting to find. We've already done this experiment. I know your works. And, and every time we have seen that in the four previous letters, well, what we get is a, is a list of works, of things that Christ finds commendable, labor and tribulation and holding fast and, and patience. But, but Jesus doesn't do that here. He says, I know your, your works. And then he says, he jumps directly into the problem. Your name. Now, in the very structure of, 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 the, of the language here, uh, it literally reads, name you are having. So whenever the direct object comes first in the clause in Greek, it highlights emphasis. It's called the emphatic position. So the thing that is emphatic here that Jesus points to is name. And of course, name stands for much more than just the name that's on the door or the sign of the church. The name stands for the reputation and the image of the congregation. I've been somewhat a student of church names now for a while. Because it used to be that church names were what I might call normal. Kind of like Jesus addresses the church in Sardis. But for the last, say, 25 to 30 years in American Christianity, part of the game of doing churches is a name. Right? You can usually tell who the edgy pastor in town is because he came up with a different name. And that name is generally reflective of what the image of that church is about. And in all of the list of names that have really caught my attention and I've thought about before, there is a name of a church that still is etched in my memory, and the name is Cool Church. And I'm not making it up. Cool Church. C-O-O-L. Cool Church. And I thought, well, this has got to be a, a, a story from the onion. It's got to be a joke. So I went to the website. By the way, this is several, maybe as long as 15 years ago. And I, and I went to the website thinking that it was some sort of play on words. It was some sort of a joke. It was something that wasn't real, only to find that on the website they actually boasted of being a cool church. In fact, they say the reason why we're called cool church is because, well, we're cool. We're not boring Christians. You see, the idea of calling yourself cool church is, is to not just give yourself a name. It's to give yourself an image. That's what's going on here. As Christ speaks to the congregation at Sardis, he says, I know that you have a name, you have a reputation, you have a public image and persona about you, and everybody is fooled by it. You see, whether everybody with that cool church was, was fooled by it being a cool church or not, I don't know, I never went there, I don't know anybody there. But Jesus says no matter how much Sardis tried to burnish the image of being the Sardis church with a name of being alive, Jesus says, 
I know differently. And what's really captivating here is that verb know. It's in a perfect tense. It is a settled, searing judgment and knowledge based upon fact and truth. Jesus says, you may have a reputation, but I know. And that reputation that they had was the church that was alive. The church that was alive. The rest of the statement works so well because it's very clear that, that Jesus is, um, is setting up a contrast. You see, this assessment has revealed what the reputation is, but yet Jesus goes on to say something very different that starts with that conjunction, but. A very hard marker of contrast. And the thing that Jesus is indicating here by the very way he speaks to them is there's reputation and then there's reality. And next follows, I think, the most harsh assessment you can make of any congregation. You're dead. There's nothing, I think, more brutal than that assessment that you could give to a church than that you're dead. You're a corpse. You have no life. And it's the juxtaposition of the contrast that makes it stand out all the more sharply and just highlights the nature of the problem. You claim liveliness and vigor and vitality and you have a reputation for this. It's your image that you uphold everywhere you go. And the thing that is, is the most evident, Jesus says upon inspection, is you are the exact 100 80 degree polar opposite of what you said you were. You're dead. What makes that all the more interesting to us is because Jesus had to say hard things to every church before this. And the churches that were mentioned before this had hard things that they were facing. You have the church at Ephesus that had to deal with the Nicolaitans. You had the church at Smyrna who had to deal with the Jews who were a synagogue of Jews. You had Pergamum which had to deal with the cult of Balaam. You had Thyatira that had to deal with Jezebel the prophetess. But one of the things that you'll notice here as you look at the letter to Sardis, they don't have any trouble. This is literally like generic church. There's nothing notable that seems to be the problem here. And yet Jesus says, in spite of all that, no record of heretics, no Jewish opponents, no external persecution or opposition, you're dead. And I got to thinking about that. Who else in Scripture did Jesus say was dead? You guessed it if you remember. It's the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees. And this is what Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. You too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Reputation. Reputation. 
What is the reputation that Jesus highlights about the Pharisees? The reputation was righteousness. The reputation was righteousness. And, and, and the hallmarks of, of that piety and righteousness just seemed to leak from the pores of the Pharisees, right? It started with the elaborate dress that they wore when they went into public. Everything about their public persona and appearance just seemed to exude piety and godliness. And then uh, the position or the persona of the Pharisee in public. Remember Jesus says of them, they like to pray long prayers for pretense. So, so they were the religious people who were standing out and letting their light shine, right? They let everybody know just how godly they were by their public devotion. And yet Jesus says, in spite of your elaborate purification rituals and your reputation for righteousness, he said, you're nothing but a tomb. And inside are the bones of the dead. You feign righteousness, and in reality, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Do you know what hypocrite means in Greek? It means literally an actor. It comes from the world of theater and drama, and it literally means to play the part. Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They beautified the outside, and inside was vain deceit and spiritual rot. It's like Paul says, of warning about a, a subsequent generation. They have a form of godliness, and they don't know the power. They're dead. This is an awful assessment, because really, there are few things in this world that I really don't want to look at, and one of them is a corpse. I don't think anybody looks at a corpse and finds it to be fascinating and exciting. And the reason is because of what happens in one moment. There is animation. There, there is the appearance of life. The skin color is different. The eyes are darting and perhaps the body is moving and, and the voice is at least quivering and then in the next there's just nothing there but, but something that is still and is lifeless and is gray pale and the thing that is the distinguishing feature between the living and a corpse is animation and it's unmistakable and this is what Jesus says of this church you have a reputation, but you have no animation. You have a reputation, but you have no animation. You have the public persona of being alive, but the reality is you are dead. People of God, you could ask anyone, if you could, that has a death certificate. And they would rather actually be alive than have a reputation for being alive. Being on this side of the grass is a big difference. Not just the reputation that goes along.
So Jesus assesses the church, and then he exhorts the church. And that now is what emerges in verse 2. And I think we should be very interested. What is the message to dead people? Really, think about it. What is the message to, to the dead? What is the appropriate thing to say to somebody who's dead? And it's quite interesting if you just kind of put that filter on or that lens on and that perspective. You say, what do you say to a dead person? And this is Jesus' words. It's like a bugle blast. Wake up! Now, there's irony in it because you could scream that in the ear of a dead person all day and they won't move. Imagine the stupidity of doing that. So there's some irony here. Obviously, when Jesus assesses them as dead, he's not saying they're stone-cold cadaver dead. It's for dramatic effect. He's highlighting the deep danger of their situation. But so here's the thing. It's the equivalent of putting the bullhorn into the ear to rouse the sleeping. Wake up. And the verb form is quite fascinating here because it suggests your own participation in it. You wake yourselves. That's really the language and the force of, of what Christ is saying. It is a command. They are to wake up and to become alert and watchful and vigilant and engaged. See, this is already helping us perceive what in the world is the problem in Sardis. And in a sense, it doesn't seem to really fit because if your reputation is that of being alive and that's how you present yourself, it would seem like this message doesn't match. But Jesus says, here's the heart of the problem with you. You're not awake. You're not vigilant. You're not watchful. You're not engaged. And so here's what he says after he says, wake up. He says, strengthen. And it's a word that means Make something strong with decisive measure. So this is a call to, to, uh, to take up action immediately with assertiveness and aggressiveness and, and strength and resolve. And here is the key to what they're to do. He says unto them, you are to strengthen the things that remain. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? He's just said they're dead. And now as he, as, he, as he brings this message to the church about what is the alternate path, what is the prescription for, for growth here and for change, he said there's things in you that remain and they're not dead. It's about to be. The patient is leaking blood. It's all over the floor. The pulse is faint and it's barely there. But there's something there. That is the force of the bird. It's about to die. It's, a, it's about to gasp its left. But it's still got life. It's precarious. But Jesus says it's time to act decisively and sober up and strengthen the things that remain. And here's the reason. Look at verse 2. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. Now we finally have peeled back the onion far enough to figure out what in the world is going on. You see, these are very powerful exhortations, but, but Jesus now is giving the basis of the exhortation, and the basis of it is signaled by that word for there. 
So he said, you're, here's the problem. And the problem is uh, your works haven't been completed. There's something to see here that's really important because it's hiding in plain sight as it were. Notice that Jesus is not condemning the church at Sardis because they don't have any works. No, quite the contrary. It's probably exactly a part of the, the public image and persona of this church. They are busy with everything. Uh, years ago, uh, a church historian who, who I kind of like to read published a, a popular article saying the hundred things that the church is doing wrong. Now you can imagine what they would be, but his point is they're, they're doing everything from collecting underwear for the homeless to, to, you know, to, to, to buying socks for people who need it and, and every other thing that makes it look like the, the church is just full of vitality, but it's dead. There's no life in it because there's no soundness in it. In a sense, that's what Jesus is saying. Their works are abundant. They're plenty. But the problem is they're not complete. And the form of the verb here is passive. And that tells us something important. That their works, though they have a show to them, are missing something. They're missing something that is essential. And we know what that is, people of God. Faith and love. You see, one of the problems with the Pharisee is that um, they pride themselves on their strength. They pride themselves on their strength. They've got all the works. Uh, I'll get you all the works you want. They don't have any problems showing their works. But are their works from faith? Remember what Paul said of the Thessalonians, one of the things that made him really think of the, of the Thessalonians being alive to God is, I see your works produced by your faith. You see, what needs to be completed and, and filled in and sketched in, as it were, is not that they didn't have works. The problem is their, is their works weren't coming from faith and their aim wasn't for the glory of God, it was for public consumption. 1 Corinthians 13, how about love? One of the most terrifying chapters in the New Testament just happens to be the chapter that everybody reads at their wedding. If you're not terrified of 1 Corinthians 13, you never read it. I mean, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, and I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Isn't this what everybody says today is social justice and, and that is called a gospel issue? I think it is. And, and, and Paul explicitly says, it profits me nothing. Why? It's incomplete. Because it doesn't flow from faith and it doesn't flow from love. And therefore it's dead. And it's just concealing spiritual rot. So we have one of two things that are going on here. Either the church of Sardis has a fair number of false professing Christians or they have very many conscience-seared Christians. And the thing about this that really troubles me is because of our own experience, right? 
we, we've seen a lot of Christians here, haven't we? People who knew how to pray. People who really seem to be interested in the theology of the church. We've had people that, well, they, they wanted fellowship. They wanted everything. They, they were going to be a part of, of all of it. And then the next thing you know, we begin to see the drift. We begin to see the falling away. And we begin to wonder what's wrong. And the answer is false Christianity, false profession. And so Jesus does something here that's very important for the church. He says, here's how we can figure it out. Here's the test. The test of whether you're a false professor or whether you're a genuine Christian is do you apply the word of God to your life and when you see that you are falling short of the glory of God, do you repent and seek to bring forth the fruits of genuine righteousness? That's what Jesus is saying. I've assessed you, and your problem is bad. It's potentially spiritually catastrophic. Show the signs of life. Strengthen what remains. Wake up. Complete those works. Bring faith and love to what you do in your service of God. And I have to tell you, people of God, that is sobering. How have my works been? How have my works been? thinking about that and I said you, you can literally do all the right things it's so easy to become deceived have all the right beliefs all the right worship all the right practice all, all the right works I think I've got Christianity down until I miss this part what I was doing is not complete because it is not formed from faith and love because I got so involved in building up an image and a reputation with all the right things, by the way, that look good. Until I forgot to read the letter to Sardis. Here's the test. Jesus says, do they respond? When they hear this call, do they repent? Are they concerned? That's coming now with the council, okay? So let's we'll move forward to the council that Christ gives to the church. And it's, uh, it's actually rich counsel, and it's designed to follow up, and I know that because of what? So, the very first word in verse 3. In view of everything, the giant word there is um, therefore. Translate so here, I don't care, it's fine with me. The point of it is for Jesus to say, alright, I've said a lot to you, now what? Here's the counsel. It's a threefold counsel to the church. It's very important that we see each part of it. And so we have, first of all, remember. And believe me, it's as simplistic as it could possibly sound, right? Until we remember it's at the heart of the Supper of the Lord. Do this in what? A, a, a thing of repetition that's supposed to happen every time the church meets together for worship. And at the heart of the thing that Jesus appointed for the church until he comes again is what? remember it's a present tense it's imperative mood and it means don't ever stop remember what are they to remember what you've received what you heard 
got to thinking about that, and I said, I think I've seen this language before. How about 1 Corinthians 15? The Apostle Paul reminded the church at Ephesus what they had received. Right? You have the word here? What you received? Paul reminds the church at Corinth. What did they receive? And, uh, of course, what they received was the the message of the gospel with all of its saving facts. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. What is it you're to remember? What is it keeps you from spiritual deadness and rot and decay in your heart? And living a life like a Pharisee? Remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel. Perpetually Regularly, daily, consistently, remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus Christ died. Remember that he was buried. Remember that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Remember. When I heard that, I also started thinking about another passage in Scripture, which is a great one. Hebrews 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. See that in your text here, verse 3? Remember what you've received and what you have heard. Now this time we come to the preacher from Hebrews 2, 1. He says, you're to do this, people of God. You are to remember and pay close attention to what we have heard. the gospel message. And the thing that's so sobering about that admonition, which gives it so much force, is this. So that we do not drift away from it. Do you know what that word means? It means to be swept up in a torrent. You see those images of flooding and in Tennessee recently where the waters of the floods were overflowing the banks and, and houses and cars and people were being swept away because no one has enough strength to withstand them. We're going to see that again with this hurricane as it lands. There will be people and things that are just swept and they're carried along and they're absolutely without power to resist. That's what the preacher says here. Make sure you pay a, cl- a close attention to what you've heard so that you're not swept away. And what's implied here? Well, spiritually, there is a way to get carried away and swept away. And that way is by refusing to remember what you've heard. The way to get swept away in the Christian life is to refuse to remember what you've heard. How does that happen? It happens that one morning I woke up and I decided not to go to church. And I said I was sick and I wasn't. And then I found out that I kind of enjoyed being away from church. And what happened once began to happen twice. And then what was irregular became regular. And then I found out that I really didn't care about the Word anymore. I didn't care about Christian fellowship anymore. I didn't care about a lot of things I used to care anymore. And what happens before I know it? I haven't been to church in six months. I don't return the phone calls or the emails of the pastor when he's calling and saying, Where are you? 
All of a sudden, I find out that people don't have an email address. They don't use their phones to text anymore, which blows me away. I'm not going to check your Facebook account, so don't worry. Or your Instagram, I don't care. The point of it is this. We know when it happens. We see when it happens. The preacher says, this is how it happens. When we don't pay close attention, when we don't do what Jesus prescribes here, remember what you have received and you heard, what happens is we get swept away in a torrent of our selfishness. There goes our spiritual life. Jesus is warning the church about that. You may look alive, but he says, I can see with x-ray vision and you're dead. Remember, and he said, keep. And that seems to be fairly common sense, huh? Don't just hear it. Be doers of the word also. But the thing that seems to hold it all together to me is this. Repent. You show me a Christian that isn't a repenting Christian, I'll show you a Christian that's just like sardis. If you don't know what it is to wake up every day and repent of your sins, you're in trouble. If you don't know what it is to wake up and to repent of your sins... You are in trouble spiritually. I have to say this all the time because I don't think my repetitions get through sometimes. We all have to struggle with this, but this is the reality. Jesus Christ says the way to avoid this problem of reputation not being real is repentance. Taking in what we've heard, receiving what we have heard, thinking over what we have heard and realizing we're failing and repenting. And going straight to the cross of Jesus Christ and remembering again and again the unsearchable greatness of Christ. You will never know it until you know your sin. You will never enjoy it until you constantly know your sin. Jesus says to the church, remember, keep and repent. Or else, and here's the hard part of the text, okay, people? Here is really the hard part of this text, and there's no way to, to make this sound any better. So let's go. 3B. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know the hour when I come. It's quite obvious that the therefore in the middle of verse 3 is designed to grab our attention to say, if everything fails that I have just said, here is what will happen. And the thing that is so sobering about this form of expression is that Jesus uses this phrase to describe the second coming. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, you don't know the manner uh, of the coming of the end. Here's what it's going to be like. He says, be on the alert. And be sure you're doing that because if the head of the house had known at what hour of the night the thief was coming, he would have been there and been on alert. Obvious, right? The Apostle Paul, when he wants to speak of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, warns the Thessalonians that that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus is not speaking of his second coming here. Jesus is, is speaking about his coming to his church in discipline. And he says, just when you were saying to everybody, we're cool. Jesus is coming. 
and he's coming like a thief. And I started to think about that, and I said, what does that mean? What is Jesus going to steal? After all, they've shown they're dead. What is he going to steal? And then I remembered these words of Jesus in Matthew 13, 12. Whoever has, to him more will be given. He will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. All of the, the pretenses of having some spiritual thing in your life, any fuzzy feeling, whatever it is, Jesus says, at some point, you keep denying me, and you keep playing the hypocrite. At some point, when you don't expect it, I'm going to take what little bit of seed that's in your heart because of the power of the Word of God and I'm going to take it away and I'm going to steal it from you and you're going to be left cold and lifeless and without spiritual vitality. That is sobering. That is very sobering. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this, that for a time... In the administration of providence, God withdraws the gifts and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin. In other words, God takes away that which remains to show if you're really one of his, what happens when he lets you go. It's a very uncomfortable message. As I said, there's nothing peculiar about Sardis so it's a universal message it's to us today. It's a great warning for us as a congregation. So what do we do? I hope we're all asking, what in the world do we do? And I think the answer is by seeing what is in the hands of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Remember we saw this before? It was in our greeting today to worship. The seven spirits before the throne. We saw it back in chapter 1. We expounded chapter 1. And Christ uh, carrying uh, the, uh, the stars in his hand. The stars are the representation of, of the ministry of the church, Right? So by, by holding both of these things together, the seven spirits, which represents the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars, which represents the ministry of the church, Jesus Christ points the way. And the way is this. The Holy Spirit working grace in the heart through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. The way that we wake up and the way we avoid a vain reputation. And the way we find this strength. And the way we remember. And the way we keep. And the way that we repent. Is the Holy Spirit working grace in the hearts of the people of God. Through the preaching of the word of God. As Jesus addresses his church and gives them this awful assessment, the thing that he prefaces it with is the solution. This is the solution. The sitting 
under the sound preaching of the word of God and pleading with the spirit of God to take that ministered message from scripture and use it to work grace in the heart. People of God, there's no better way to apply this text than to remember the larger catechism question and answer 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? That's all of us. I include myself in it because I'm preaching it myself. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. People of God, if we would be delivered from the fraud of vain reputation and spiritual deadness, here is the way. We attend upon the preaching of the word with diligence and with preparation and with prayer. And we can be sure that God will send the Spirit of God and to make His Word fruitful in His life, in our life, in the life of the church. And I think that's what it means when verse 6 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church.